In this episode of Boss Files, the man behind the famous bars, kind bars, that is, Daniel Lubetsky, how his company came to be, the motto he lives by, and how he took on the FDA. Like, really? Like, you're going to tell me that I can eat a sugary bowl of cereal enriched with artificial vitamins and that's healthy, but I can't eat a bunch of raw almonds? Plus, what brought him to tears and his drive to try to help solve Middle East peace. Here's my conversation with the founder and CEO of KIND. Daniel Lubetsky, thank you for being here. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you for having me. You're the man behind the bars, the famous bars, the famous kind bars. Daniel, how did they come to be? So I had been doing 10 years of efforts in the specialty food space, making all the mistakes in the world. I had originally gotten into food just by fluke because I, I'm very passionate about building bridges between people. And I was getting Arabs and Israelis to work together. Over and food. Using food as kind of like the conduit or the catalyst to bring them together to make food together. And we were selling our products there. And I can go back to that story if you'd like. But the, after 10 years of a lot of lessons and a lot of mistakes at this guy that I had no background in the food space, I kind of figured it out. And I was very frustrated with my own snacking options and uh, when I was skipping lunch or dinner at the desk or when I was traveling and I had to be on the go, everything felt very car- cardboardish or astronaut food or not real food. I f- it was either too indulgent or too plastic mm-hmm. or both. And I had this idea to make products that are made from ingredients you can see and pronounce, which is literally in our trademark. And that was the, the genesis. But there were a lot of pitfalls along the way oh, and a lot of mistakes. A so. lot of twists and turns along the way. And we're going to get into the story of sort of what led you here and the failures that you openly talk about that led you to this success. I find it interesting, Daniel, that you call Kind a not only for profit company. Certainly you make a profit. Certainly you have a, a bottom line that is important for your, you and your employees. But, but what does that mean, not only for profit? Yeah, when I first had the first company, PeaceWorks, I was a little struck that when I learned about the system, you have to have a business that's a for-profit or a non-for-profit. And there was something missing in the middle, so I just coined the term not only for profit, which is a business that is very passionate about creating an economically sustainable, very, very well-run fina- and finance business. Well, finance at the beginning it wasn't, but ru- well-run business, and at least we, were, we learned eventually to do that, but also had a commitment to social impact. When I did PeaceWorks, it's about bringing neighbors in conflict regions to work together. When I did KIND, it's about not just improving the health of our bodies, but also about treating each other with kindness, about inspiring people to be uh, more empathetic with one another. But Hmm. it's all the common thread is building bridges. Sounds like something this country could use a lot right now is more of a coming together. You're Israeli, born in Mexico, correct? I'm actually a confused Mexican Jew that a lot of people confuse as either Israeli, Lebanese, Turkish, uh, (laughs) French, uh, Italian. I get everything. But I was born in Mexico. Mm -hmm. My parents were from, well, my mom was born in Mexico. Her parents and my dad and his parents came from Eastern Europe. And I do have a lot of passion about resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I have spent a lot of time there. And we'll talk about that effort in a moment as well. You talk about having a social cause for your business. Now, I've interviewed a lot of CEOs and covered a lot of companies over the last decade. And, you know, there are these sort of CSR, corporate social responsibility units of companies. How do you get past those that think, oh, come on, that's just marketing, right? Because you say, show your humanity in commerce, in business, and in life. Make the case that this is more than just marketing for you guys. Yeah, well, I mean... For me personally, it's pretty easy to make the case because it's been my entire life. But uh, we don't even talk much about our social mission at Kind. It's only now that people are starting to learn it. We do a lot of work for since we were founded, but we learned because of my PeaceWorks experience that we need to really lean in first with the business aspects. And so the product, people, the reason people buy Kind and the reason it's grown into the fastest growing healthy snack company in the United States is because the products are delicious and made with nutritionally rich ingredients that you can feel good about doing the kind thing to your body every day. So it's because it's tasty and healthy. The social impact stuff, which is probably what drives me and a lot of my mm-hmm. team members the most, is something we 
are very passionate about, but we don't start the conversation without a leaning because we we don't want that to be a crutch. We think that the reason people buy our products is because mm. of their uh, attributes, health and taste. Uh, the reason social impact for me is most important. First, the way my journey started, I was really lucky to start with a company that was bringing neighbors in conflict regions, not just in the Middle East, but in Indonesia and in Sri Lanka and Mexico to work together. And I discovered, even since my college years, I wrote my thesis and it was a very boring 268 page thing that made everybody fall asleep. But it was um, an exploration of how economic forces can bring people together and can, as you connect with human mm -hmm. beings, shatter stereotypes, discover each other's mm -hmm. humanity, as you build vested interests and preserve those relationships, you basically cement relations among, among neighbors. And I just discovered the, the power and potential of market forces to drive social change. And mm. so for me, I mean, that's basically what drives me also a lot because of my background. I also um, just anecdotally have noticed in, in, in corporate America and all these companies that I cover, we know from the data, from these studies, that American consumers now are demanding, and American employees are demanding more and more to know what the company they work for or buy from stands for. What are those companies' values beyond the core business? What are their values on you know some very controversial social issues? Do you think there's a sea change in America going on right now on that front? I do notice, not just in America, but in the world, uh, evolution, not a revolution yet, but I absolutely know from when I started in the, I'm dating myself, but in the early 90s, I started uh, PeaceWorks, 93, 94. To today, I do think that the consumer is more informed, expects more for companies, mm -hmm. and I only think that's going to accelerate. But I would not go as far as some others go to highlight that that's my experience is that everybody will say that in a survey but the reality is that people are going to primarily mm. vote with their number with their mm. dollars on what really fits their lifestyles and yeah. their and their immediate needs but social mission does really give a lot more loyalty a lot more momentum i mean in 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 our case hopefully also a lot more passion and and more it helps with word of mouth with 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 other areas you guys are big, but you're not as big as the behemoths that are your competitors. Some of the latest numbers, 77 flavors, you sell nearly 500 million bars a year. Is that right? 190,000 stores? More, uh, but, but yes. Even more? Yeah. Well, more, more than we, we've, the number that we share is that we've surpassed a billion dollars in sales okay. in, at retail every, since last year. Okay. So then comes the question of competing with, you know, with the, the, the Goliaths, competing with the General Mills, competing with the Kellogg's. How do you how do you tackle that, Daniel? First, our team, every one of them is a shareholder. Every one of our team members owns stock in kind. But more important, there's an ownership and entrepreneurial mentality at kind. If you ever visit us in our office, which I really hope you sure. will, there's this energy and you will see Everybody that comes comments on how people feel that sense of ownership and passion and com commitment to one another, and not just to be kind to one another, but to they owe each other a commitment to excellence. So I think that's our greatest weapon. Second is the authenticity of what we're doing and our obsession with excellence. Like our products, the number one ingredient in every single thing we make is something nutritionally rich like almonds or fruit or uh, any other tree nut or whole grains, not 50%, 100% whole grains. And we are the only company that we know of that makes um, healthy snacks where 100% of our portfolio, mm -hmm. every single one of our products, the number one ingredient, something nutritionally rich that you can eat every day that's recommended for daily consumption mm -hmm. and that has surpassed a billion dollars in, 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 in value. Every one of our large competitors that you mentioned is almost shackled with a recognition from consumers that the number one ingredient in their products is either sugar or a refined carbohydrate or something that's really not kind for your body. And I think consumers know that when they're going to eat a kind product, we're going to do right by them and we're very obsessive about it. We don't cut corners. I think those are among our, our, our strongest uh, assets. But I can continue. We have many other things I'm proud of. Well, one of the fascinating things that has certainly gotten a lot of attention <clears throat> is your, you don't call it a battle, uh, but 
it reads like that with the FDA. So they come to you and they say, you have to take uh, healthy and tasty off your labeling, right? And they argued with your qualification of some ingredients as healthy. Instead of acquiescing, you, you fought them. You took them on. You said, give me more information. And you argue they sort of encouraged you to look at things, make changes to get it back. You won. That was a, a very uh, transformative experience for me. We, we got a letter a couple of years ago telling us that we had in four of our items, we had to remove the term healthy in the back of our wrappers. We said our philosophy is about being tasty and healthy. Mm-hmm because they, they claimed that those four items didn't meet the definition of healthy. And we did comply, uh, we absolutely complied, but then we also looked at deep and started understanding why does this, what does this happen? We didn't understand, we made products with that commitment always. And what we learned is that the law was broken, the regulation made no sense whatsoever. It was like a 34 year uh, old regulation where you could have still today, it hasn't been officially changed. There's, they've, been, they've committed to make changes. But today you could have a bowl of sugary children's cereal or a children's pudding or a, a po- toaster pastry, all just whose number one ingredient is sugar or a refined carbohydrate, and they could call themselves uh, healthy. But you could have a steak of salmon or a bunch of raw almonds mm. or a half an avocado, and none of them could call themselves healthy. <clears throat> Sorry, and the reason for it is that under the regulation they ignore sugar and they obsess about fat, even if the fat content is coming from what we now know are healthy fats, such as the fats from almonds mm-hmm. and tree nuts and and uh, salmon, and and so we did <laughs> reflect on wow, this makes no sense. And do you want me to share a little bit more what happened? Yeah, because I read the FDA response to you guys. And they say that you made some changes and that you can now put healthy on the front of your packaging away from the nutrition label. But, you know, the way I read it from them, it wasn't a complete win from you guys. And as you said, the the regulations haven't changed. And this actually sparked a lot more from you in terms of founding an outside group to try to fight this. So before that, I, w- I want to complete the story, but we, we did file a citizen's petition and when we were exploring it, a lot of our smarter friends said, don't waste your time with government. You're going to have a big, long beard by the time that you <laughs> hear anything back from them. And to the FDA's credit, they really did lean in. They, they really, really looked at it and the, and the people that were at the top of the chain looked at it and said, this truly doesn't, doesn't make sense. What we learned then is there was a, a lot of news uncovered that about 30 years before, scientists were paid off by the sugar industry to basically deflect from sugar and point the finger at fat, which as a father of four children infuriates me as a husband of a woman that's a transplant nephrologist, a kidney doctor that deals with people going on dialysis machine. It drives me nuts to think Mm. that for financial interests, people would literally lie and for generations end up hurting people's health. So not only did we succeed in getting the FDA to agree that in our case we could use it, but also more important that the regulatory definition was going to be open for comment and hopefully they're going to change it. But then I think what you were asking is what did I do next? Yeah. And after like a, a little bit more reflection, I felt that I had a responsibility. As I learned more about this world, I realized that there's really an uneven playing field because a lot of these things end up decided by the influence of special interests that get money from, from companies. And then the companies fund these special interests. And then these special interests often take very extreme positions. And because they don't have a brand to defend, they can be a little bit more aggressive. Like brands, companies, even the larger ones, realize that sure. they're going to be under the scrutiny of the media, so they're a little they bit more cautious. But some of these special interests sometimes uh, think in a very short-sighted way rather than a long-term community-oriented way. So what we did is we created something called Feed the Truth, where we asked three like people with impeccable credentials to form a selection committee that then would form a board where I would have no role in choosing the board mm-hmm. and I would have no role in any of their decisions so that I, I don't have any bias in guiding them. Mm-hmm. But I seated them with a, for me, it was a huge commitment, a 10-year uh, commitment of $25 million, $5 million initially and then 
2.5 million dollars after year three through ten and the goal is to basically give nutritionists scientists doctors public health advocates whose only goal is the health of patients to have some modest resources to be able to mm. fight the fight against these special interests that get like you know hundreds of millions of dollars the fight became so much bigger than these labels and now as you said you've built and you're building feed the truth um i was looking we didn't build it in our building we we conceived it but separately. we empowered somebody else to own it and we have it, no say whatsoever in how it's going to act and you're going to walk away yeah. from it um and even the people in the board and the section committee didn't believe me they kept saying well do you no it's not going to work these people are like they're so amazing, like Michael Jacobson from CSPI, Marion Nessel from uh, NYU, Dev mm -hmm. Eschemeyer, formerly from the White House and now a, a, a nutrition advisor at a company. They're people with such impeccable credentials. I didn't want my being part of a food company in any way to bias them. You, though, haven't put healthy back on the labels, right? Why? For us, it was more, I mean... We are who we are. Nobody's going to tell us It was the are. principle it's, 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 for you? Yeah, you were it was fighting? Principle. It okay. was a principle about like, really? Like, you're going to tell me that I can eat a sugary bowl of cereal with, enriched with artificial vitamins and that's healthy, but I can't eat a bunch of raw almonds? Like, all the science shows that the more almonds or tree nuts that you eat, the more you live. That makes no sense. So you're also, as a CEO, pretty outspoken on uh, policy issues social issues, issues that the administration is grappling with and, and deciding on and working on right now. So before we get into your story of how, your story pre-kind and your incredible story of, of your father, I want to get your take on some of these key policy issues right now, if we can, can tick through them. Healthcare. The healthcare debate is raging uh, in Congress right now, and you as a company have been very outspoken about healthcare and, you know, what is the role of corporate America in all of this? What is the role of the government? Where do you fall? Well, I wouldn't say that we're so outspoken. I think we're too shy. I think we should be a little huh. bit more, more uh, boisterous, but my, my team members might disagree. Uh, on healthcare, I think that the big problem is connected to food. I think we are dealing with the last minute of our lives and we're forgetting that that last minute is determined by the prior 70 years of our lives where we're eating a lot of empty calories and a lot of refined carbohydrates. And you have a problem where we're subsidizing. It's a bigger ecosystem pro problem. We're subsidizing all these uh, monocrops that are emitting and creating all of the sugar and refined carbohydrates at like super low prices. You know, you can pay 20 cents on the pound for sugar and things like that. Or you have tree nuts, almonds two years ago were as much as $5. But even at their best, they're like 10 to 20x higher than some of these other... Yeah raw materials, so it, it, it is understandable why some of the big food companies are gonna just lean towards using primarily sugar and refined carbohydrates and things that are devoid of nutritional content. And then you end up living your life eating mm -hmm. that stuff for you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, years. So you're saying years. that should be sort of regulations on what we consume, how No, it's not regulations, but education. Education, proper, how it's labeled, should be part, yeah, proper and, part education and parcel has, of the I think people should have the right debate. to do whatever they want, but I don't have any problem yeah. with, uh, with soda taxes, uh, and I certainly huh. don't have any problem with educating people to yeah. understand truly what's going on, because otherwise we're, hurt. You're, we're putting poison. Most moms, I you know you're a, a, a mom. new mom, congrats, and uh, most moms and dads don't realize that 96% of fruit snacks in the market today that call themselves fruit snacks for yeah. kids, the number one or number two ingredient is yeah. sugar. And some of them don't even have sugar, uh, fruit, they, or, or fruit might be the 10th ingredient. And they have all these weird things like carrageenan and uh, all these weird, weird things that I don't even remember. You can't even pronounce them. And we're giving our kids this stuff, thinking yeah. we're feeding them and nourishing them with fruit snacks. Where in fact they're not fruit snacks; you they're ma you make Franken food. You make you make me feel better for like um, the hours that I spent blending my daughter's own sweet potatoes and all of you this. You should feel better. You know, uh, certainly lo lost some some sleep time over it. But I knew what was in it. Look, I knew exactly what I what she was eating. Uh, and and we, we just launched uh, something called Kind Fruit Bites, where the only ingredient is fruit, mm. fruit, and fruit. And it's very rare. I'm seeing more of that out, out there. Corporate tax rate, 
Is the corporate tax rate in America too high and does it disadvantage American companies? I do think that the corporate tax rate is too high. I was just talking to a friend, I think in Canada, was it? where I was just walking through and giving them some advice and I said, well, you should do this because otherwise you're going to pay 45 or 50% in taxes. It's like, what? No way. I'm only huh. paying 15%. Uh, definitely, uh, we are disadvantaged. I, I, I'm not a policymaker in tax. I will deflect. But what I do think that I, I am a believer that in the long term, reducing the corporate tax rate mm -hmm. would make us more competitive vis-a-vis uh, -vis other countries. What is the one thing that you are most hopeful will happen under the Trump administration? I want to clarify first that 100% of everything we make is made in the United States and we've generated thousands of jobs. And so for me, it's not just about tax rates or anything like that. It's also about commitment yeah. to my country and to what we're building. But I do think the, the corporate so, tax I, Look, you talk about your 600 employees. This is a company you're growing fast and you want to grow more. What is the one thing that you'd like to see from the Trump administration on the economic front that you think could really make a difference for more Americans? I mean, for me, what I would like to see from the Trump administration above all is more empathy and more uh, a different discourse. I, there's a lot of policy issues that I could comment on, but for me, the fundamental mm. thing is a little bit less about me versus you. Mm. And I'd encourage all of Congress and all of uh, our government to unite America, to not allow foreign powers or anybody to divide us. I think that, you know, as someone that was born in Mexico, as someone that has a father who went through the Holocaust, who was a survivor of the Nazi regime of Hitler and who was in a concentration camp in Dachau. Mm. I do not take for granted the beauties that our system has, democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom to meet and gather and be friends with whoever you want, to think whatever you want, to choose whatever religion you want. And the fundamental building block for that is civility, empathy and respect for another, recognition that we're all in this together. That's what brings us as Americans together. It's the best system that has ever existed. And we really shouldn't take it for granted. And we really need to work on, on uh, rebuilding uh, empathy and, and respect among, one, among ourselves. Let me read part of an email that you sent to your staff on November the 9th. So just a few hours after the election results came out. And you write in it, I'm asking myself, how will I explain all of this to my children when they wake up in a few hours? You went on to say, how will I explain the results of the election to my children? How will I explain that life doesn't always serve up a path you wanted, but always you are served with this choice? Do I retrench or do I rise up? Do I abandon hope or do I envision a way to make things better and act upon it? Do I demonize or humanize? So a few questions. One, it is dangerous for an executive to risk alienating some of their employees when they are uh, open about their political beliefs and, and things like this. A, how did you make the calculation and the choice to do this and think it was to the, to the benefit of your company? And B, um, what, did you, what did you decide to do and how did you galvanize your staff to try to work towards unity? So first I should also add that in that letter I very, very clearly shared that in our company there are people from all different yep, perspectives. I shared that people that are among the closest people in my life, including family members and, and team members in our senior most leadership, voted for someone different from whom I voted. And that was not the issue that we needed to grapple with. It was the issue of unity and of discourse and of respecting one another and of, of, of making sure that our, our leadership, our, our political elected representatives, are going to make sure that they build bridges for us and that they don't uh, uh, treat them more vulnerable with disrespect. That's for me what I, you know, and I, I have worked with some people uh, on Middle East policy to try to help because that's an area of expertise of mine mm -hmm. in, in the Trump administration. I respect deeply actually what they're doing there. So I don't have any uh, agendas mm -hmm. against them. But I, the thing that silences me is like the bullying or... Uh, just that discourse that when my kid, I've taught my kids always that bullies never win, that about, you know, treating the vulnerable in a, with disrespect is not going to get you anywhere. And that's what I think was, for me, the most difficult. And for my children, I think uh, they were asking me questions that I had to, and I, I ended up talking to them about, you know what, America is still the most amazing country in the world, and our system is something worth fighting for, and we need to all 
do that without dehumanizing the other side either. Mm. Because just like I have these feelings, people on the other side have the other side of feelings. And if we each allow ourselves to be more and more divided and alienated, yeah. no American is going to end up winning. So we need to find a way to to listen to one another. It's such a hard skill set. It's so easy to say, but it's such a hard skill set. What I try to do is every single day when I'm looking at the news, mm -hmm. I search for things that I disagree with and then I read them and I try to understand huh. them. You, I mean, you've launched a mission to do that. Actual, tangible actions yeah. you've taken. Pop your bubble? Yeah. Tell me about that. That's a very cool initiative that, uh, that our team conceived. I'm so proud that, that they did. I love it. it it's uh, the recognition that a lot of people are living in eco chambers and they only listen to news that they want to listen to and also to things that their friends share with one another. So most people nowadays get a lot of their media from social media, from yeah. Facebook primarily. And it, it tends to reaffirm their beliefs rather than inform their beliefs. And they don't realize it. They have family members that that's how they get the news and they think that that's wholly representative mm. of what's going on but when you're only getting news from people that think like you and so they forward to one another things to make them feel good you end up only deepening and deepening this isolation and lack of understanding between the differences yeah. so we created something called pop your bubble when you have the courage to do it you go into our, our app and you click on it popyourbubble.com and you go through the app and if you have the because it's not easy, you know. You have to open yeah. yourself up to these ideas and stuff. But if you click on it, then you can choose, I think, 10 people or, or a number of people that then populate your Facebook feed mm. with different people you've never met. We, we choose purposely not just a politically different dimension, yeah. but a socioeconomic, geographic, and different dimensions. Yeah. So you're exposed to people, and it's really refreshing in some ways. It's fascinating. Like when we go for entertainment, we watch a movie, Part of what we're enjoying is learning how other people yeah. live, how other people think. Suddenly here you can connect with people that are different from you and listen to how they process stuff. And it's very, uh, it's not always easy, but if you have the temperament and the strength for it, it, it really helps you grow. Because you talk about this a lot. You talk about kindness and empathy, and you say that those are both about discovering what we have in common with those who are different than us. And it sounds like that's a key Thing that you believe needs to happen a whole lot more in this country right now. Are you hopeful? I'm determined. I, you know, when I started, it's funny because when I started working on peace in the Middle East, people would think I'm crazy because here was this confused Mexican Jewish lawyer selling sun-dried tomato spreads in the streets of New York <laughs> and thinking that it, I could bring Arabs and Israelis together. Just sit with that for a moment. A confused <laughs> Mexican, Mexican Jew selling what? Sun-dried sun tomato, tomato spreads with the brand Moshe Pupik and Ali Mishmumkin's world-famous gourmet foods. <laughs> and you're a lawyer at the time. And I was a recovering lawyer. None of it made sense. And, and, and I was building a movement that became the largest movement of Israelis and Palestinians to empower more moderate voices called One Voice. Mm. And when I was starting it, people thought I was absolutely crazy. And I myself questioned myself. And, you know, I, I actually gave up before I then went back to do it. You I, did? Why? I, because I had this idea and I tried to get a couple of people to support me. And at that point, I was struggling so much with putting food on my, in my own um, table or whatever you call it. I could barely make payroll meet. I had a launch kind at that time. And with the PeaceWorks products, I was just struggling paycheck to paycheck. And I had this idea for how to do this. I recognized that we needed to empower moderate voices in the Middle East. And when a couple doors were closed on my face and people didn't want to help me do it, I gave up. Mm -hmm. And I went back to just trying to just live day by day building PeaceWorks. And then... There was a horrible terrorist bombing in Netanya yeah. called the Passover Massacre where people that were pains you just to think about it families were just completely like little kids yeah. destroyed by this bomb and i I, I had nightmares I, I woke up at, at night and I was literally having sweat thinking that I felt guilty that I'm here in the comfort of New York knowing that there's something I could do, but I wasn't doing it. So I went back and I just started One Voice with $10 mm. at a time and built mm. it slowly but surely. And eventually um, it grew and grew and grew and eventually it, we figured it out. And now it's like a movement that has spawned many other things and has spawned many other 
platforms were to, to empower moderate voices, and it still hasn't resolved the Arab-Israeli conflict, but it's made a difference in building bridges. And uh, the yeah. thing that I wanted to say is that when I was starting on that journey, people think, well, are you optimistic? Are you positive? And for me, the question was wrong. The question is not that. The question is, are you determined? Because mm. it's not, I'm actually by nature a worry bug or a worry, wart. or worry wart, sorry. I, also I like mangled. bug better. Let's go yeah, with that. Worry wart sounds horrible. Horrible. Um, I don't understand where that came from, but um, I'll say a worry bug. But I always, you know, I'm like Woody Allen in a Mexican body. Like I'm always <laughs> thinking about the worst case scenario, but, but I choose to do something about it. And I think that is the message that I want to give my children and my friends, that it's not about just complaining and analyzing. It's about doing something where even it's, it's the yeah. modicum of change. You said earlier, and I just want you to elaborate on it, that you're hopeful um, about the Middle East peace prospects under this administration. Well, what I said is that I would give them a ton of credit. Okay. That's the one area, the one area where they've exceeded my expectations and done more than almost anybody gives them credit. It's, it's a very difficult thing to solve. I, I don't know that they're going to make progress, but I, I really admire um, Jason Greenblatt for the, the way he's gone out and met. Everybody that's met him confirms that the guy is really, really, his only agenda is to hopefully help bridge this and mm. he's listened very well he's uh, he's done a very nice job but he's facing a lot of challenges I, am i hopeful that we're gonna be able to overcome everything not if we just leave it up to him not if we accept things as they are and cause there's so many mm. forces against momentum for for advancing reconciliation between israel and the palestinians and between yeah. israel and the arab world that really all of us need to recognize that we have some power and with that power some responsibility to do our small mm -hmm. part. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I would bet that in the next couple of years we're going to have tremendous right. momentum, but I also wouldn't bet against it because mm -hmm. the only thing you can predict about the Middle East is that you cannot predict <sighs> yeah. anything. There you, yes. In the U.S., am I hopeful? Again, I'm more determined. I just think that we have to all wake up as Americans, mm -hmm. as fellow Americans, and unite in, in, in listening to one another and, and in making sure that politicians understand that that's what we expect, that mm -hmm. we are going to expect from that, that they're going to be uniting us, not dividing us, and they're not going to allow divisiveness to, to end up uh, be the way they rule. It's, I think, very dangerous. That's how you end up having, mm -hmm. you know, as a person that survived, that who, who's the son of a survivor of, uh, of Nazi Germany, I take it very seriously that we don't want to have uh, any possibility of government dehumanizing any segment of society or the media. I mean, I think it's very, very dangerous to, to, uh, to not respect the mm -hmm. role of free speech and mm -hmm. in society. Yeah. Anyway, Listen. I guess I am a little bit, uh, uh, what did you call it? Outspoken. So let's talk about your dad, Roman, a Holocaust survivor, a man who had a profound impact on you and a man about whom you say, I want to do whatever I can to help prevent what happened to my dad from happening again. So tell us about him. He was a very rare person. Uh, I've never met anybody else quite like him, though I've met a couple people that I recognize they have a lot of that, those very rare strengths. But he had the power to never forget the horrors of what he went through, but to not let her embitter or consume him either. And most Holocaust survivors that went through such horrors had to shut it out of their lives. They couldn't talk about it or they were completely consumed and embittered by it. And it was very rare that like my dad would talk about it. And when he would talk about it, he would cry and he would just break down in front of high school groups of children or who would go to middle schools and talk to the kids about it. Uh, and it was a very difficult experience. He would then just be shaking for the next day when he had to mm. bring back those horrible memories of, of that dehumanization that went on where six million Jews got killed and in, in, in a systematic way where they were, you know, sending them in, in, in cattle cars to be uh, cremated in, in, in concentration camps. It was a horrible thing. And, and yet he had the courage to talk about it, but he also then would have the strength to be the sweetest, nicest, most fun, most loving person in the world. And he didn't let that experience turn him into something mm -hmm. else. The opposite, he used that experience to recognize that he was here on borrowed time, that he needed to spend every moment of his life making that flight attendant or that waiter crack a smile if they're having a bad day. And
because he, you talk about how he actually lived this moment of kindness from, uh, from, from one of the, the, the guards uh, yeah. when he was in a concentration camp. Yeah, so there were a number of um, moments where he attributed his survival to the kindness of strangers. Mm. In some cases, not nice strangers. There was the, the German uh, guard that when nobody was watching threw a potato by my dad's feet and he could have gotten in trouble or punished or, uh, I don't know, beaten for helping my dad, who at that time was a 12 or 13-year-old kind of subhuman, like he, you know, and yet the fact that that man looked at my dad's eyes and recognized his humanity, I think nourished him as much as that potato. It was not just the potato, it was that moment mm -hmm. they're common, of humanity. They're common humanity. Yeah, and there were other, there were many other, stories that he would tell me if you want I can share more about how people rose up and it, it, most interesting it was not necessarily the nicest people what for me was most interesting and I think what my dad shared with me was a story of the superintendent that was a very nasty person he he um, when the war started he took my dad who was at that point eight or nine I get nine or ten years old and he said hey are you hungry and my dad said yes like here let me show you where there's food and he took him to the street and pointed to a pile of dead bodies and says, hey, those are Jews. You know, you can go and have a bite. Mm. A nine-year-old, he was saying this to a yeah. nine-year-old. And this man, when the paramilitary forces rounded up uh, families in my, father's, in my grandfather's building, um, at one point went to my grandfather and said, Lubetsky, you know what? Every one of these other families that were Jewish have been killed. And he showed them in the garage mm. how all the families' bodies were piled up and said, but I'm going to spare you because you treated me with dignity. And every year you gave me my bottle of schnapps uh, for the Christmas holidays. And you always looked at my eyes and, and treated me with respect. So get out before I change my mind. It wasn't a nice guy, right? He, he also got all these other people killed. But he somehow found it in himself to to spare my yeah. grandfather's family. And, you know, it was after I think my grandmother was raped. It mm. was not good circumstances. But, but, but I only lived because of the kindness of an asshole. And I mean, for me, that just so informative about our duty as human beings to recognize each other's humanity and build empathy so that we can make sure that that doesn't happen again. Do you remember... Daniel, your first time sitting down with your father, hearing about this, I would assume you were maybe a, a young I was nine young years boy, old. teenager. I was nine years old when this happened, when, when I first heard it. And the reason I remember is that my mom got very upset and she said, Roman, what are you telling him? He's nine years old. And yeah. he looked at me and said, he's nine years old and he needs to hear it. I was nine years old, old when was, I needed yeah. to live through it. Yeah. So how does that shape every day for you I mean that I do think that's the most uh, formative aspect of who I am and the more I grow up and the more I look into myself the more I realize how deep that was seared into my consciousness mm -hmm. of that sense of justice to try to make sure that you help the people that are being treated unfairly to stand up against the bully and protect the needy I mean, I'm not a, a hero. I just really try to be a better human being, but I make all the mistakes in the world. Uh, was it yesterday? Before yesterday, I picked up my son from, from camp, and then the police officer made my, my, my wife uh, move uh, quickly from the car and didn't let me load the cars. And I'm like, why are you doing this? I mean, I wasn't an absolute <laughs> jerk, but I lost my temper. Okay. So I'm a normal That's human. Being human. I am, so <laughs> I'm, I'm human. I just human. try through, through the kind movement to bring kindness more front of mind. And it's done so much good for me. Mm. It makes me happier when I, what, what, what you discover about kindness is the only power in nature that I know of that is just a net happiness aggregator all around that it yeah. can just increase happiness. If I'm kind to you, not only do you feel good about somebody showing that humanity, but I feel good about mm -hmm. myself. So mm -hmm. if all of us were just kinder to another and just brought kindness more into the front of our minds as mm -hmm. a state of mind, society would be better off. 
And kind does not mean weak, by the way. Absolutely. Kind is a strength. One of the one of the problems that exist today in society is that people confuse kindness with being nice. And you know, being nice is good, but it's very, very different. Being nice, you can be nice and be passive. But to be kind, you need to be active. Mm-hmm. You need to take To be nice, you can be polite, but to be kind, you need to have the strength and the courage yeah. to be honest. So a nice person doesn't bully, but a kind person stands up to the bully. A nice person doesn't create problems, but a kind person stands up to roll up their sleeves to solve those problems. And that's a lot of what the philosophy of kind is. Also, as far as our products, you know, a a, a nice product maybe removes artificial ingredients, but a kind product never had artificial Mm. ingredients to begin with. A nice product may have a couple nice features, but a kind product is something you can eat every day and do the kind things. That's why we've named our company Kind. By the way, your father passed away in 2003. My father passed away when I was 15, and I, I think about him every day. Uh, I look back and smile now. It's not those most moments aren't filled with tears, right? They're filled with the memories that I thankfully have. But he, in so many ways, has shaped me professionally, uh, as a human, as a mother. And I wonder for you. I know your office is filled with your father's furniture and it helps you feel close to him. Um, What do you hope he would say about you and what you've done? I, you know, my greatest regret is that he didn't get to meet my wife and my children. I think he'd be very proud. He'd love my wife. He also, he always wanted me to be a a doctor and a lawyer. I was only a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) The high high demands. Well, you know, he, uh, no, I I was half joking about that, but only half. He really loved medicine, but I couldn't, Mm. I can't see, I can't look at blood. But he, um, you know, he was deprived of an education. He was only uh, nine years old when the war started. So he only had a third grade education. So for him, us getting our own education was yeah. very important. The fact that my wife is the sweetest. She's doctor. a doctor, so there you yeah. go. So he 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 would have loved her, and she's just a very sweet, good human being. Our, my children are great. I wish they would have met him because I think yeah. they would have. But you know, a it's those stories, right? I mean, I. Correct. I interviewed a lot of people last year uh, for a story about my father, and my producer kept all of the raw interviews on a on a um, hard drive for me, so that one day I can have my daughter sit down and watch them and learn about him, you know? And so, so there are always, always the memories. So before, before we wrap up, I just, you know, I think so many people listen to these and they hear these incredible success stories. And let's just talk about your failures and the bumps in the road, because you had like some big professional failures before you've had this success. So what were they? Well, let's start with just how kind got founded because you were mentioning 2003, it's just so interesting when you look back. I never would have known it. It was one of the toughest and yet most rewarding years of my life. My dad died on January 8th of 2003. Mm. It was a horrible day. It was really, really painful. And that that year was a year of mourning for me. And yet it's the year where kind was conceived. It's a year with one voice, the movement took off. Looking back at it, I, I'm shocked to think that I almost gave up. Uh, on kind and on one voice and we literally I remember we were sitting around the table where we were facing the situation where a, a line that we were importing at the time the manufacturer decided to add artificial ingredients to it so overnight we had to lose all of our natural sales which is all we sold at that point yeah. was 90% of our sales were in the natural channel and we were you know close to being bankrupt and we were facing all right we wrap up and we go back to our homes and you know i'll go back to being a a, a lawyer or try to get employed somehow and uh, or we try it again and we out of nowhere decided we're going to do it ourselves but this time we're going to control our own destinies and we're going to make kind ourselves with a brand and a formula and a set of values the kind promise that still lives in every one of our 77 products where every one product we make has, you know, is nutritionally rich mm-hmm. and delicious, etc. Uh, and we, nobody would have gotten upset at me, of my friends, of my family, if at that time I had been married, or would have judged me for saying, all right, you've, you gave it your best you shot, give away. up. 
nobody would have judged me. It was, it was totally fine. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was very close to doing yeah. it. But I said, all right, let's, I believe in this. Let's keep going. And suddenly things started clicking. And from these 10 years of barely moving an inch at a time, suddenly we started moving a mile at a time and then 10 miles at a time, just growing so fast. And it was fascinating. And a lot of the success of kind is thanks to the failures that I had in those first 10 mm. years where I was learning, I was making so many mistakes. Mm -hmm. I was not focused. I was trying to expand wherever I could. I was trying to sell to whomever would want the product. Just buy than, it. <laughs> yeah, just rather than being focused in, in where it should be yeah. and trying to make whatever I could make rather than focusing on something that really would fit the brand promise of our products. And I could go on 50 more mistakes that I made, but all of those, because I analyzed them and I kept them close to my heart, then yeah. when we, and to my mind, when we launched Kind, we really were much more obsessive about quality and about being long-term oriented and about being strategic mm. and disciplined and all the things that we had done wrong, we, I think we did right with Kind and, and we're very blessed that we, that it's grown so much and it's given me the ability to do more things for society. So you've called one of Kind's advantages the fact that you guys are privately held and you've, you've been very candid about it. You've said, look, we can be much more flexible. We can, quote, break the rules. Um, obviously, it's not about quarterly earnings. So is that the game plan or is there a one day take this thing public? We always regularly evaluate inbound inquiries about whether we would like to have a strategic partner. It's such a CEO answer. No, no, but it's true. <laughs> like we really do. We, 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 we're actively receiving inbound inquiries as we speak and we've been doing it for years. And obviously a lot of large food companies have reached out to us. Yeah. But they, for us... Do you us, say no the, to any big ones? We've said no to many big ones. Hmm. But the prism through which we've analyzed the, um, the potentially partnership with someone is whether they can help us advance our mission better than the way we can. And so far we've concluded that we can do it better. If we find a partner that has our values, that's gonna respect our values, mm -hmm. and that can help us grow globally faster, mm -hmm. we might do a uh, global partnership. If we find somebody that can help us grow kind into a different category through a partnership or joint venture, we'll consider it. It just has to be foremost, uh, making sure that we keep the brand promise, mm -hmm. the kind promise, the brand values, and then everything else is tactics. So one big lesson that you've said that you learned is that you wish that you understood what a virtue patience is when you were a lot younger. Yeah. You were impatient. Yeah. I still am impatient. It's one of my strengths and weaknesses. I, it's just part of my nature. And uh, it's, it's partly what drives me mm -hmm. uh, and I can help me create value for my team. But it's also something that sometimes can really get in the way. <laughs> me too. Advice for your younger self. What would it be? Um, I mean, still the same advice today. This was my grandmother, <laughs> Paula, used to tell me, take a time to stop and smell the roses. But I, I, it's very hard for me. I never take yeah. stock. I, I'm, I'm enormously grateful and blessed for the family that I have. But I just always, I'm just, well, what else can we do? What else can we do? Yeah, well, you should do it because that time with your kids. That's right. You know what my dad said at 49? The only thing he wished he had was more time. Well, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Spending time with my kids is my, I, I do a decent job on that. I, I, I could always do more. And I, if I had one yeah. hour extra, I would give it to, to yeah. my family. Yeah. But I, I always leave work by 6 p.m., huh. 6.30, so that I can you. put my kids to bed. Yep. It's the most important thing in my day. It's the only routine yeah. that's, you know, almost never broken. Like the event that I'm invited for for dinner has to be very, 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 yeah. very, very important. Yeah, to say, yeah. I've gotten really good at saying no to yeah. things with my daughter because it's a choice between am I going to spend time with them in that event or am I going to spend time with her? Correct. Right? It's tough. I mean, for a parent, it's like, yeah. you miss a lot of things. But but after 8 or 8.30, then I get on the email and finish yeah. my work yeah. or if necessary, I might go do something. But uh, I'm kind of like a boring mm. uh, guy that way. <laughs> Mostly just... Join the club. Final question. All of this makes me think. You're, you're CEO of a company. You're outspoken on social issues. You're outspoken on politics. So you're ambitious. Any interest in a run for political office? <laughs> no. I, 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 um, I love forging change through creative market mechanisms or social impact enterprises. I'm 
I just love, that's something that I'm really good at doing and seeing how to use market forces to do something good for society. And, you know, I'm, why can't you do, you know, I hear this from a number of CEOs that say, I feel like I can affect more change in the corner office than I can in the Oval Office. And there's this feeling among them that many of them that they that Washington is too broken. Right. Do you is that part of it for you? I that's part of it. Part of it is also uh, I know what I'm good at and what I can do. And I just finished literally last night. It was like 10 years overdue, but I just finished watching The Wire. Did you ever watch yeah, that series? It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal, but it's also just depressing how government works and stuff. And so I, I'm very daunted by whether I could ever uh, look. You know, I actually you just uncovered a, a, an area where I don't think I could do sufficient positive impact like I don't know that if I was in elected office of uh, in the United States I could uh, have as much impact in improving society than mm. if I'm building a another kind impact ventures which is something we're working on and we have so, so many things in the pipeline to, to take some of the money that we were so blessed to have received and do something good for mm. society and that is can be sustainable and scalable and do something positive and we have a lot of things that are going to hopefully in the coming years address homelessness and address all these things that I'm very mm -hmm. passionate about. And I think I'll be more effective that way than, than through government. Okay. There's, there's areas for partnership with government, but every time I've tried to work with government, it's so bureaucratic stuff. Daniel Lubetsky, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. While you're there, let us know how we're doing. Leave us a rating or a review. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.